Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Stephen, a martyr for Christ. All right, so this is now the fourth message about one of the most faithful figures in the entire New Testament, and that is a man by the name of Stephen. So here in chapter seven, Stephen made a powerful defense before the 71 most powerful people in Israel at that time, and of course, that's the ruling council of Israel, that is the Sanhedrin. And during his address, his defense to the Sanhedrin, uh, he talked about three of the most famous, most faithful men in all of Israel's history, and that is uh, Abraham, that's Joseph, and that's Moses. So the last time we were together, we ended on verse 37, while Stephen was still uh, speaking about Moses. And so church family, help our visitors out. If we stopped at verse 37, the last time we were together, what verse are we picking it up in today? 38, 38. this is what we do. We just go verse by verse through God's word. All right, so right now, if you're looking at verse 38 of Acts 7, just say amen. amen. Okay, so let's follow along in God's word. It says, this is the one. So Stephen, talking to the Sanhedrin, speaking about Moses, he said, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness, 2.4 million Hebrews at 1500 BC or so. Moses was the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. Now check this out. He, Moses, received, what's the next two words? You tell me. Living oracles to give to us. And so after the Lord appeared to Moses at the burning bush, that was verse 35, and then after he performed great signs and wonders through Moses in Egypt and at the Red Sea, that was verse 36, we now see in verse 38 that God gives to Moses the living oracles. All right, so what were the living oracles? If you're taking notes, they were simply the commands of God, the law of Moses. The living oracles were the commands that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, again, right around 1500 BC. Now, of course, the most famous of all those living oracles were the Big Ten, right? The Ten Commandments, which can be found in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter five. A couple weeks ago, after um, one of our services, a lady came up to me after the service, and she quoted to me the Ten Commandments. She got them all right. But she didn't just quote the Ten Commandments, she also quoted all of Deuteronomy chapter five to me right there. I'm not gonna mention her name, I don't wanna embarrass her, but she, she, she quoted all 33 verses of Deuteronomy chapter five. And, and I, I, I thought, that's awesome. And the reason that's so awesome is because Psalm 119 verse 11 says, and I quote, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a correlation between how much of God's word we hide in our heart and how often we sin against the Lord. And so the question is, are you hiding God's word in your heart so that you might not sin against the Lord? And the other question is, do you know the Ten Commandments? Could you name the Ten Commandments? I'm gonna give you an opportunity right now, not out loud, but in your own mind, while I drink some water, I want you, in your own mind, to try to name as many of the Ten Commandments as you can name in your own head. Go ahead. 
Don't cheat and don't look at Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. How's everybody doing? Anybody got all 10? Anybody wanna stand up and name all 10? Not the lady that did that two weeks ago, but anyone else? All right, let's see how you did. We'll put them up on the screen. This obviously is a paraphrase. All right, so you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one, don't worship other gods. Number two, don't make and bow down to images. Number three, don't take God's name in vain. Number four, observe or keep holy the Sabbath day. Number five, happy Father's Day, guys. Honor your father and your mother. By the way, kids, little kids and big kids, the best gift you can give your dad on Father's Day is just honor the man. Number six, don't murder. Number seven, don't commit adultery. Number eight, don't steal. Number nine, don't bear false witness. And number 10, don't covet. Now I have a question for you this morning, church family. Are these commandments still important today? Yes or no? Yes. yes. A thousand times yes. Absolutely, they're still important today. As Christians, we are expected to keep those commandments, all of them, except one, by the way, that's commandment number four, observe the Sabbath day. Listen to me, Exodus chapter 31, verse 16 is crystal clear. The Sabbath was given to Israel, all right? So the principle of taking a day off, one day off a week to rest, is a very good principle, but as Christians, we do not have to stop working from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday, and here's why. Because we, as Christians, have entered into God's rest through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Christ is our Sabbath rest as the fourth chapter of Hebrews so clearly teaches us. Therefore, as Christians, we do not allow anybody to judge us as to whether or not we keep a Sabbath or a, a new moon a day, Colossians chapter two, verse 16. All right, so you have the commandments of God. You have the living oracles. And there was many purposes why God gave the living oracles to Israel, but here's just one of them. One of the reasons God gave us the Ten Commandments was to show us our sin and our need for a Savior. All right, once again, this is Christianity 101. And by the way, this is why I am for the dis public display of the Ten Commandments in our nation. 100%, absolutely. Why? Number one, because they're given by God, the one and only true God. And number two, we're hoping that as people read it, they think, oops, I messed up, I need forgiveness. And now they're on the road to Jesus. One of the reasons the commandments were given to us is to show us our sin and need for a savior. If we're all honest, we'd all have to admit that each of us has broken at least one of the commandments at some time in our lives. Ladies and gentlemen, that's called sin. And what is the payoff for sin? Listen to me, Romans, chapter, uh, Romans 6, 23a, for the wages of sin is, help me out, death. death. But how many of you are glad for part B of that verse? 
right? Listen to me. For the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, so the Lord Jesus knew that we could never keep all of God's commandments perfectly in our lives. So what did he do? Did he let us die in our sins and be damned to hell forever? Is that what God did? No. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. And Jesus, the eternal son of God, left his throne, came to earth, and through the incarnation, he added a human nature to his already eternal divine nature. He wrapped himself up in in a body, in human flesh, and he, throughout his life, kept the, the living oracles perfectly throughout his, all, his whole life. Listen, on your behalf, he lived the life you could never live, and then he died the death you and I should have died. We say that phrase a lot here at Calvary because it encapsulates the gospel. Jesus lived the life you and I could never live. He kept the commandments of God perfectly throughout his entire life. He was a lamb of God without blemish and without spot. And then he died the death we should have died. We should have died in our sins and went off to pay for our sins apart from God forever. But God said, no. And Jesus took your sin and my sin in his body on the tree and he accepted the wrath of God on our behalf. And then three days later, he rose from the dead proving that he is Lord. That's the gospel, I hope you never get tired of hearing it, and if you've probably already figured out by now, I always try to figure out a way to stick it into every single message, because there's people who come here that don't know that. They think you just gotta be good, and God will take you into heaven. If God will take you into heaven for being good, why in the world did Jesus die for your sins on a cross? And so, the gospel is good news, but there's more good news, and that is when you turn to Christ alone, to save you, the Holy Spirit of God comes inside of you and your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes in, he gives us a lot of things. Two things specifically that I wanna point out today. The Holy Spirit gives us both the, and I want you to shout out the underlined word there, and the power to keep God's commands. The Holy Spirit of God comes into our lives, into our bodies. Our body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking New Covenant talk now, New Testament talk. Not coming and going, but coming to stay permanently. Our bodies become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He gives us the want to. <laughs> he gives us a new nature that actually wants to keep God's commands. And he also gives us the power the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, ladies and gentlemen, if you're a born again Christian, lives in you. And so please do not tell me I just had to sin or I can't overcome this. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is inside of you. What you need to do is learn to walk in a dependent relationship with Jesus Christ and rely on the Holy Spirit and tap into the power that can help you live a victorious Christian life. And so that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing the Holy Spirit gives us the desire and the power to keep God's commands. Ladies and gentlemen, the Lord gave us his commandments not to hurt us, but to help us. How many of you know 
that if you keep God's commands, your life will be better than if you break God's commands. So much better. You tell me, will your life be better or worse if you go out and commit murder? Or just ask the guy on death row. Go, go to the guy on death row and say, how's this working out for you? His life is worse, why? Because he broke God's holy commandment. Will your life be better or worse if you go off and commit adultery? You tell me, worse. Just ask the lady whose husband cheated on her and left her alone with the kids. And I can say that, I can go through all of the commandments and say the exact same thing. And it's because so many people ignore, scorn, and disobey God's commandments that our society, ladies and gentlemen, is falling apart. When God's commands are disobeyed, people fall apart. Marriages fall apart. Families fall apart. Churches fall apart. And nations fall apart. But when we, and don't miss this part, when we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep God's commandments, then what does God do? He blesses us, he strengthens us, he establishes us. And not only that, he blesses and strengthens and establishes our marriages and our families and our kids and our schools and our churches and our nation. Let me ask you a question. What would America be like if everybody turned to Christ, was filled with the Spirit of God, and kept the commandments of God? Amen. You see, we have the answer right here. In the church, in the Word of God, we have the answer. What would this nation look like if everybody turned to Christ, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and kept God's commandments? This is one of the reasons I'm so excited about our school across the street, because along with math and English and science and history, guess what? We're gonna teach those kids next door, we're gonna teach them the 10 commandments, we're gonna teach them the Lord's Prayer, we're gonna teach them the Beatitudes, we're gonna teach them the fruit of the Spirit, and we're gonna disciple them, not just on Saturday night and Sunday, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, they're gonna hear about Jesus Christ and God's Word, <laughs> along with the academics as well. And so, the problem is Israel disobeyed God's commands. And so it says now in verse 39, Stephen still talking to the Sanhedrin, our fathers refused to obey him, Moses, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, so sad here, they turned to Egypt. Saying to Aaron in verse 40, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. Okay, so can you see him? I want you to picture this in your mind. There's Moses. He's coming down Mount Sinai with the two tablets, the Ten Commandments. And as he's walking down Mount Sinai, he hears a strange sound. There's singing in the camp of Israel. And as he continues to go down with Joshua, he looks and he sees the shocking sight. There's the people of Israel and they're dancing around a golden calf. You see, Moses had been gone for so long, the people had gone to Aaron and said, Aaron, we don't know what happened to Moses. We want you to make us gods to go before us. And Aaron said, well, give me all your gold earrings. 
And the women and the men took off their gold earrings and they gave them to Aaron and Aaron made a golden calf, a young bull. The image of the young bull was a pagan image. A pagan idol is symbolized virile power and strength. The young bull, the golden calf, was an image that was worshiped by both the ancient Canaanites and the ancient Egyptians during the time of Moses and before the time of Moses. So what were the children of Israel doing? They were going back to the gods of Egypt and they were sacrificing to a lifeless image. They were dancing around it and they cast off all restraint and they were committing sexual immorality with one another. And as they worshiped the golden calf, they had the audacity to say this. This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Can you believe this? After all the Lord had done for them, right? Sending 10 plagues upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians, delivering them from slavery, opening the Red Sea so they could walk across on dry ground and escape and then crushing and killing the Egyptian army in that same Red Sea. And then when they get over to the other side, providing manna for them every single morning, there's food. And then water from the rock, and I could go on and on and on, but after all that the Lord had done for them, this is how they repay him. They say, this is your God, pointing to a young bull, a golden calf, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. See, as Stephen said at the end of verse 39, everybody please look at the end of verse 39. Here's the problem. In their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Egypt, if you know anything about the Bible, is a symbol for the world. So in their hearts, they turned back to the world. So before we move on, I gotta ask you this question. If you're with me, please say amen. amen. After all the Lord has done for you, delivering you from Satan, sin, and death, setting you free from the world, the flesh, and the devil, after all the Lord has done for you, all the blessings that God has done for you, will you, in your heart, turn back to Egypt? Will you, in your heart, turn to the world? And the reason I'm saying this, you say, Pastor, we're Christians, we're all here on Sunday morning, worshiping the Lord. Listen, I've been doing this for a long time, I can't even count how many people that we used to minister to at this church and back at Calvary Jupiter who decided I'm turning back to the world and they go back to live like they used to live, think like they used to think, talk like they used to talk and go to the places they used to go to and they avoid the people of God and they avoid the Lord. What did they do? In their hearts, they turn back to Egypt. If you make that decision in the future, Here's what happens, life is tough. How many of you guys know life is tough? Right, and the storms come and they beat on us and many Christians become disillusioned because we believe some false gospel. We hear some dude on TV talk about how everything's supposed to be beautiful and wonderful in our lives. And when everything is not beautiful and wonderful, we become disillusioned and we get mad at God and we walk away. And what I wanna ask you is will you be faithful until you take your last breath by the power of the Holy Spirit of God? Will you not allow your heart to go back to Egypt but will you allow your heart to stay true? Because if you go back to Egypt, it will not end well. Please listen to me, it will not end well. It never does, it didn't for the children of Israel. Look at verse 42. 
It said, but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, and so Stephen now quotes from the prophet Amos. This is Amos chapter five. God says to Amos, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? And the answer is no. Verse 43, God says to them, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Riphon, the images that you made to worship. So what's, how's it gonna end? And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Okay, actually it says in Amos, beyond Damascus, thinking, talking about the northern tribes of Israel, but Stephen, under the power of the Holy Spirit, changes it to Babylon, speaking about a later captivity of the tribe that these, um, the Sanhedrin was from, that's Judah. And so, how does it end? It doesn't end well. While the children of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years, they weren't sacrificing, many of them, to the Lord, Yahweh. They were worshiping false gods. The pagan god Molech, the fire god, and Riphon, another foreign god. And sadly, parents passed down this idolatrous lifestyle to their children, generation after generation after generation. Moms and dads, please hear me. Your kids are watching you. And they're going to imitate not so much what you say, but what you do, your lifestyle. And what happened is that these parents passed down an idolatrous lifestyle to their children, generation. How many of you guys know God's a patient God? And so finally, late, much later in their history, what, what happened? God said, fine, you want idols? All right, I'm gonna send you to Gentile lands that are filled with idols. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians came down and they conquered and they took captive the 10 northern tribes of Israel beyond Damascus. And then later in history, in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came down and they took the tribe of Judah, the southern tribe, away into captivity. It never ends well when we allow our hearts to turn back to Egypt. Now, in our Western civilization, we, we think about idolatry in the Bible, and we think about a golden calf and people dancing around a golden calf, and we think, man, what nonsense. But how many of you guys know that idolatry is not limited to bowing down to lifeless idols? Let me say that again. Idolatry is not limited to bowing down to lifeless idols. So what is idolatry? Well, Zondervan says idolatry is anything. Can you guys say the word anything? anything that leads to, to the dethronement of God from the heart. This is why the Bible says, guard your hearts. It's a heart issue. And so anything that you or I allow in our hearts to have a higher place than God is an idol in our lives. We may as well say, Father, could you step down from my heart's throne because this now is the most important thing in my life. And in our materialistic culture, this could be so many different things. You know, it could be that car. You could have settled on something so much cheaper, but you fell in love with that car. And what do you do? You baby that car, you constantly clean it, you keep it in the garage, and God forbid if anybody ever dings it because you'll explode all over them. 
see, if you're honest, if you're honest, you'd have to admit, this is an idol in my life. Or maybe it's that boat, that boat that you thought will give you so much joy that sits on the side of your house year after year as you pay the 6% interest payments. See, if you're honest, you'd have to admit, this is an idol. Can we just be honest before God? Listen, you can get mad at me, that's fine. But all I'm asking you to do is be honest before the Lord. What is higher in your heart than God? Whatever it might be. Maybe it's a sports team. This is where I get under conviction. I love sports. But, but for some people, man, you know everything about that team, you know all the players, you know all the statistics, you follow that team with more zeal than you follow the Lord, you read about that team more than you read the Bible. When they win, you're dancing in your living room, and when they lose, nobody can talk to you for 24 hours because you're so mad. If you're honest, you'd have to admit, this is an idol in my life. Or maybe it's that boyfriend or girlfriend you can't stop thinking about. Night and day, every day, every minute, you keep thinking about him or her. What's happened now is you've allowed in your heart that person to have a higher place than the Lord. If you're honest, you gotta admit it's an idol. Now, I have a question for you. Is it wrong to have a nice boat or a nice car or to follow sports or to go on a date? Is it wrong, yes or no? No, it's not wrong. As long as those things don't lead to the dethronement of Christ from our hearts. And that leads you to your next point. All right, here's your next point. Christ must be our first love. Our first love has got to be Jesus Christ. We're Christians. He's gotta be number one. He's gotta be the one we're most passionate about. He's the one that we've gotta live for. And so every, every so often we gotta ask ourselves and be honest, do I love Jesus more than I love anyone or anything in my life? Does he have first place in my life? And if the answer is no, then what do we do? We repent. <laughs> Look at what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, who by the way, the church of Ephesus was a solid, doctrin doctrinally solid church. You know, one of the things I, I love about Calvary is that, man, we got our doctrine down. And I am so careful, I don't allow anybody up here ever um, that's gonna wrongly divide the word of truth. And so I got my antennas always up for false teachers. No way that's happening here in this place. Well, so did the church at Ephesus. The church of Ephesus was a doctrinally sound church, but their hearts got cold. And so Jesus said, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember therefore where you have fallen, and what's the next word? Repent and do the first works or else I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If you don't repent, then what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna stop, I'm gonna snuff out your light of influence in your community. God forbid that happen here. You see, we, we have a light that goes out into the treasure coast for the people that the Lord is drawing to himself. But if we allow other things to have a higher place than the Lord, God will snuff out our light and we'll become dead and dark and cease to influence our community. What do we have to do? We have to repent 
and do the first works. And so the, the question you gotta answer is, what was my heart like and what was my life like when I first met Jesus? You remember that? You remember when he first came in? You remember when you first came to know him? And you remember how you devoured his word? You couldn't get enough of the word of God. And you couldn't, you enjoyed praying and going out for prayer walks. You were excited about coming to church. It wasn't a duty, it was a delight. You talked about the Lord with other people in normal conversation. You freely served. It wasn't a big burden and you got an email reminding you to come and serve. No, it was something you loved to do. And listen to this, you joyfully tithed. You understood God gets first place in my life. That means he gets the first fruits of all my increase. And this is not something I do grudgingly or besettingly. No, because God loves a cheerful giver and I'm gonna just give it to him with joy. See, that's how it used to be. So repent and do the first works. Otherwise, the Lord says, not that I'll take away your salvation, but I will remove your lampstand, your light of influence. And so Stephen, still preaching to the Sanhedrin, continues on now in verse 44. So please look at verse 44. He said, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, that's the tabernacle, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it, brought the tabernacle in, into the promised land, with Joshua, Moses' successor, even when they dispossessed the nations, the Canaanites, that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of who? At the end of verse 45. David, King David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was who that built a house for him? Solomon, okay, so after the tabernacle had been around for almost 500 years, from the time of Moses to the time of Joshua to the time of David, David comes under conviction. He goes to his friend, the prophet Nathan. He says, Nathan, I'm living in this beautiful house of cedar, and yet the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. This is not right. Something's wrong with this picture. And Nathan's like, go and do whatever you know, your heart tells you to do. But then God comes to Nathan and says, uh-uh. David's a man of war. He's got blood on his hands. Solomon, his son, is gonna build a temple. And so Solomon builds the temple, and it was beautiful. But then the Babylonians came and destroyed it in 586 BC. But then Zerubbabel came 70 years later and he rebuilt it over a number of years. And then Herod comes in later in history and gives it amazing facelift. And now here we are in AD one of, um, in, in, in Acts chapter seven. And now we have Herod's temple, big, beautiful, breathtaking, but there's a problem. The Sanhedrin who Stephen's preaching to and many of the Jews of that day had made the temple their idol. They allowed the temple to have a higher place in their hearts than the Lord. And so Stephen said this now in verse 48. So please look at chapter seven, verse 48. He says, yet the most high, he's talking about the temple. He says, yet the most high God, Yahweh, does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, now he's quoting Isaiah. This guy knew his Bible, by the way. <coughs> Heaven 
is my throne and the earth is my footstool. I want you guys right now, the best way you can, I want you to picture God Almighty and he's sitting in the third heaven and he's propping up his feet on planet earth. Is God big, yes or no? Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? In other words, God, Stephen says, is a million times greater than the temple. So don't make the temple an idol, but the Sanhedrin made the temple an idol among a myriad of other sins, and so now Stephen's gonna call them out. Now, ladies and gentlemen, please, if you're with me, say amen here. People have actually, I had a guy one time come to me, he looked right at me, he goes, you preach too hard. He said it to me right out here in the foyer. You preach too hard. Let me tell you something, I don't even come close to these guys in the Bible. Stephen's gonna let them have it right now. All right, so everybody look at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your father did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, Messiah, whom you have now betrayed and, what's the word? Murdered. Murdered. Ooh, who's on trial now, Stephen or the Sanhedrin? And you, who received the law, the living oracles, as delivered by angels, and did not keep it. Wow. Not pulling any punches, is he? So how do you think they're gonna respond to his words? You think they're gonna humble their hearts and say, we repent. Let's find out. Look at verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were, what's the word? Enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. That had to hurt. They're so angry that they're like grounding their teeth at him. How many of you guys have King James or New King James? What does it say? They gnashed at him with their teeth. By the way, what are people doing in hell right now? There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. This This is the fruit of an unregenerate heart that gets mad at God when truth is preached and they don't repent. But Stephen is that total peace. Look at verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is so cool because God gave Stephen a glimpse into glory and he saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Ladies and gentlemen, where did Jesus go after he ascended into heaven? Right? Caiaphas asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? Look at what Jesus said. I am, and you will see the son of man seated, please say seated, Seated. at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Paul later on in his letter to the Ephesians said that the father raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Peter comes along later and he writes to the elect exiles, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. 
And then the author of Hebrews later on, he comes on the scene and he says, after making purification for our sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so where did Jesus go after he ascended from heaven? He went up to sit, please everybody say sit, sit at the right hand of God. But did you notice that he's not sitting in verse 56? Okay, so look at verse 56. Stephen says, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man, what's he doing? Standing at the right hand of God. Here's your next point. Jesus stood to welcome Stephen home. He stood up for the first Christian martyr. Jesus said, I'm standing for this guy. And he stood to his feet. And as the holy angels escorted Stephen into the throne room, Jesus, standing on his feet, no doubt said, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, the question is, what kind of reception will you have? What kind of reception will I have when the holy angels escort us into the throne room of God? I know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but what you've got to understand is that Paul wanted a better resurrection. What you've got to understand is that how we live our lives in this life will determine whether we get rewards or not in heaven. Why don't we, instead of making it our goal to be rich or to have a mansion or to be the CEO or do whatever for ourselves in this life, why don't we make it a goal that one day maybe Jesus will stand up when I come into the throne room as I hit my face and thank him for the grace to live my life for him all the way through. Why can't that be our goal? Why can't our goal be that? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, a million years from now, you'll be so happy that on June, what it was today, June 11th? 16th, wow, I'm a week behind. You'll be so glad that on on June 16th, you made a decision to change your priorities, stop living for yourself and start living for Christ. Stop living for your position, your power, your prestige in this life and start living for his glory. And then maybe, 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 because of his grace, not your works, but as a grace that worked through you, he'll stand as you come into the throne room. So Jesus was standing, and now in verse 57, as the worship team comes out and the ushers prepare for communion, it said that they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They're running at him. They're so angry. This is a bad day at church right here. I can't imagine if someone started running at me And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named who? So here's the first mention of the man who will become the Apostle Paul, who the second half of the book of Acts is all about. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my what? My spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. From that statement right there, we know this for a fact, that Stephen immediately went to be with the Lord. Now it says that he fell asleep. The last two words of chapter seven, he fell asleep, but what went to sleep. 
The body, very good. Students of the word, right there. The body went to sleep, but the spirit immediately went to be with the Lord. You say, how do you know? Because 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Philippians 1.23, Paul says, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And Luke 23.43, Jesus says, today to the repentant thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. There is no soul sleep. The body sleeps, the spirit immediately goes to be with the Lord. So here's the question. The question is, how can we have assurance as believers that our spirit will immediately go be with the Lord when we take our last breath? Here's how. It's because of what these elements represent. These elements represent the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, the body which was broken for you and me, the blood which was shed for you and me. Why? So our sins could be forgiven and we can immediately go be with the Lord forever and ever.